This podcast is brain powered by the University of Sydney. We are controlled transmission. Sleep Geeks, Dr. Carl, and Adam Spencer. Yes, hello and welcome, Science Freaks. You're with the Sleep Geeks, myself, Adam Spencer, and. The only incredibly lovely Dr. Carl. Okay, I lied about part of that. Yeah, you are, but you are. Your name is Carl. And this week's special episode of the Sleep Geeks is brought to you by the number six, which strictly, Carl, has already been a number that's brought us an episode of the Sleep Geeks podcast. Because it was perfect. Perfect number. Six equals three plus two plus one. Which are its factors. And the next one is 28. When and a it- number is equal to the sum of its factors apart from itself, it is described as a perfect number. Six is perfect. 28 is perfect. 496 is oh, perfect. Oh, is that it? 496. But six is also the number of legs that a locust has. Ah. Which brings us to our special guest this week from the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney, the director of the centre, Professor Steve Simpson, joins us. How are you going, Steve? I'm pretty good, Adam. We'll talk soon about the Charles Perkins Centre, but I first uh, came to know you through your groundbreaking work on locusts. What did you bring to the world in our understanding of locusts? Oh, various things. Um, Locusts, as you um, may remember, are grasshoppers, normal grasshoppers, except in one respect, and that is that if you crowd them, they go from being camouflaged, green, solitary creatures, just like a normal other grasshopper, into a swarm-forming, plague-forming monster. They get a bit of attitude, don't they, they when they get, get in groups? They get real attitude, yeah. So instead of being solitary and avoiding one another, they gang together in huge swarms that can number hundreds of billions of animals and devastate entire regions, particularly in North Africa. Hang on, but that's a positive feedback loop which has no end. Because if they stay stuck together, they then want to group together, which means it just keeps on going until they either eat all the food or equal the mass of the earth. Oh, that's pretty well true. So it is autocatalytic, as they say. So yeah. this is positive feedback. So what happens is they normally avoid one another, but if you bring them together for long enough, and that's not very long, a couple of hours, oh. they start actively aggregating, and then that sets in train a positive feedback. They aggregate, they form bigger and bigger and bigger aggregations, and then they start to do things which, as individuals, don't seem to make much sense, but they act as enormous cohesive groups. So rather like an army, instead of each individual trundling along on its own path in its own different direction, they all, as if of a single mind, march together in alignment, and they pass through the environment. As juveniles, they're they're marching When they become adult, then they've got wings and they take flight and they form these massive cohesive swarms. And as they go through the environment, then they cause devastation. I remember some of your research was to do with the mathematics of how the swarms move, what controls them, what keeps them going in groups. What, what, What do we understand about how these sometimes hundreds of billions of individual particles... Right move en masse? Well, the first thing is there's no leader. It's not like an army. There's no general locus that says, right, we're off. Let's go this way. And then everybody follows some sort of hierarchy of control. That isn't the way it works. It emerges in a mathematical sense. It emerges out of individuals paying attention to their nearest neighbours. So anybody, so far as a locus goes, who's beyond about 10 centimetres of me... Um, may as well not be there. Mm -hmm. But within a radius of about 10 centimetres, I have a simple rule, which is I'll align with the average moving direction of my neighbours within that circumference. And 
The net result of that, if you scale it up as a simple interaction rule, is that the entire group makes what appears to be an intelligent decision to all start moving together in the same direction at the same time, moving at a constant speed. And that quite literally emerges out of the particles, the locus in this case, following a simple rule, which is a line with your nearest neighbours. A, a simple local rule right. that has a general has a global, global effect. effect. Exactly. Ah, what about how quickly they change direction? Does that ripple through the uh, horde? Do you want to call it a horde, a cloud, a, a plague? A uh, marching band if they're, <laughs> if they're juveniles, <laughs> um, a, a winged swarm or a plague. Yes, it, it's a matter of scale. When they're, when they're covering... Hundreds of square kilometres, you talk about plagues, but at a smaller scale, it'll be swarms. And, and that distance, 10 centimetres, is roughly the distance of four inches or the distance across right. your knuckles. Right. And But it's a positive feedback loop. How does it ever stop? Well, the whole thing is based upon an effect of density. Now, uh. now this comes back, we need to go back a step now. When you've got your solitary, shy locust, which if um, she or he were, were born... Um, on their own and grown up on their own, they would be green and camouflaged and solitary. They'd avoid other locusts. And that makes perfect sense because if you're trolling around in your habitat pretending um, there's a whole load of others there and you're running around essentially shouting your your whereabouts to predators, you're not going to last long. Mm. So being shy and camouflaged is good. But if you take those animals and you bring them together for just four hours in a crowd, although physically they don't change their appearance, that does happen, but it takes a bit longer. Their behaviour changes very quickly. Is so there something about the leg muscles change, I read? Uh, no, no, it, it wasn't the leg muscles. So if you, if you think about it, what is it about being in a crowd for four hours that might cause you to change, radically change your behaviour? Mm-hmm. Well, it could be something Smell. about smelling others yeah. or seeing others, um, hearing others, or being touched by others. Being and, touched on, yeah. on, on their back muscles. Well, no. we, we had to tease these things apart and it, it transpired that the critical thing is being touched and not, as you say, not being touched just anywhere. Uh, you can induce this change by taking a paintbrush and striking, stroking a locust on just a hind femur. So if I if I sit here and gently stroke your thigh, Carl, <laughs> feel free. It's, it's, it's radio. It's it's hard to avoid. Um, I, <laughs> within quite literally within four hours, if you do that for a couple of seconds a minute over a period of four hours, you will have changed the behaviour of the animal radically. So it becomes mm. a party animal so rather than for a couple shy. of seconds a minute for a few hours. Right. That radically changes something in their brain. So it, how it long does. ago did you discover this? Oh goodness! This is more than ten years ago. I remember reading about that and thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. "What an am- and that was you. That was me. And wow!" The, and the other thing that you you worked on, and this brings across to the work at Charles Perkins now, to do with the locust diet. Yes, ah. percentage of protein in the diet, or something, yes. from what I remember. What did you observe about locusts? Well, one of the key things about locusts is you know they have this reputation for stripping the environment bare and devastating vast areas of vegetation. Everything in their path. Everything in their paths. Well, actually, they're individually they have tremendous um, nutritional wisdom. They know what they they eat. They know what they need to eat. So if they're deficient in protein, then they'll select a protein-rich foods um, source, uh, which, or deficient in carbohydrate, they select carbohydrate-rich food sources. Now, actually, there's a tie back here to the swarming story because when they're deficient in protein, the nearest source of protein in a, in a swarm is your neighbour. Mm. Of course, moving flesh. Exactly. 
And Whoa. They're, they're fiercely cannibalistic. So one of the reasons they um, have this basic local rule, which is aligned with your moving neighbours, is because if you don't do that, you're going to get eaten by oh. one of your neighbours. So cannibalism is a driving force in the rule that defines the behaviour of locusts on wow. mass. I hope you're not suggesting this in relationship to human obesity. Let's just keep moving uh, along. No, no, but, but, but there is a tie because um, as a result of a, a whole series of other experiments, we showed that they have a special protein appetite. Which, really? So they don't just feel hungry in a general sense. They have a protein hunger separate from a carbohydrate hunger. And if you force those hungers to compete with one another, protein usually wins. So if the animal's deficient in protein, it'll ignore carbohydrate to get enough protein. So, so they, they have this special hunger for protein, and it's a more powerful hunger than their hungers for other things, carbohydrate mm-hmm. or what have you. Yeah. Now, can I ask, how long does it take for them to be protein deficient, for them to then say, I am protein deficient, I'll eat some protein? Is it like an hour, a minute, a day, a week, a month? It, it's maximal after four hours. So they, it's very quick. It's very rapid. So it's a response that they accumulate over a period of three or four meals. And they'll, they'll wow. be able to tell that they're protein deficient and they'll make that appropriate food choice if you give them high protein food. And the way they know that, we worked out, is that their taste receptors change in direct response to their nutritional state. Mm. So when they need protein, their taste oh. receptors um, respond really vigorously to that sort of umami flavour, the, mm-hmm. the amino acid flavours. Number five. And, exactly, number five. And so they end up eating um, what they find tasty, and what they find tasty is a function of what they need. So there's this beautiful little feedback. Their nutritional state translates directly into their food choices. It's interesting because you've done that work on on locusts before and their nutrition and their diet and their relationship to protein and carbohydrates. And now you're at the Charles Perkins Centre, the director there, which for people who might not have heard of, the University of Sydney is a research centre into diabetes, obesity and population Uh, health. So we have um, our mission is to ease the burden of obesity, diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And that's the most exciting and I think visionary project I've ever seen a university undertake. It's a huge $500 million initiative. And you're not mucking around. You've you've picked some big ones there. Diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease and related conditions. We've added that because just about everything to do with human health um, it, you can tap back to those major rising chronic disease conditions. Mm. So let's say they, they are they are all rising. Are, are those conditions diabetes, uh, cardiovascular health, and obesity? Are they intimately related? They're, they're, you can distinguish them, but they're they're what are called comorbidities. You'll often find them coming together ah. in the same package, and and many of the same lifestyle factors are um, resulting in them. So, uh, diet is 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 a critical driver, and so this is the link back to locusts. So, what we found with protein appetite in locusts, we also went on to show not only in in insects, um, but in a whole range of other organisms, including humans. So we too have a powerful protein appetite. In fact, some um, hunter-gatherer populations talk about the protein hunger. They talk about it separately from being hungry. And what we do, just like locusts and many other animals, is that if you don't give us um, an appropriate set of food choices 
For example, if you have foods, only foods that are low in their percentage of protein, then what we do is overconsume total energy, total amount of food to, to get, get enough, enough protein. protein. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now that taps you straight back into the changes to the food supply chain that have happened since roughly 1950, 1960, where there's been a continuous, if subtle, dilution of protein in the diet. And it's been done largely through the incorporation of more fat and carbohydrate. Sugar particularly, of course, but um, vegetable vegetable oils mm-hmm. are another source of, of non-protein energy. And there's been about a 1.5% dilution of protein in the human diet since 1960. And if you do the, the maths, the geometry, because uh, that's all it is, it's Euclidean geometry, to get the same amount of protein from a diet which is just 1.5% more diluted in mm-hmm. protein takes 10% more total energy to to achieve. And Mm -hmm. that's because in the human diet, our optimal percent of protein is actually rather low in in proportional terms. It's about 15 to 20%. Mm -hmm. The total number of kilojoules calories. And a total number of kilojoules or calories that you'll overconsume in a, in a day is about ten percent more than you so need. So one one to one and a half percent drop means a ten percent overconsume. I had no idea. Absolutely. So so that's what we've called protein leverage. So uh. a small shift in the percent protein can drive massive changes in in um, total energy. Is another fundamental change in the food that we're consuming. The food, a lot of the food that people eat in twenty fourteen is more, as they say, energy dense because the way it's been processed and manufactured, right. we're cramming more kilojoules into the suitcase. So a, a, a mouthful of food or a square centimetre of food just has more kilojoules in some cases than it did 30 years ago. So for people to eat until their stomachs feel sated, they're just pumping kilojoules into them? Yeah, that, that's certainly part of it. So if you think of it another way, if you need to eat more calories to get the amount of protein that you need, Mm -hmm. that's easier to achieve the more concentrated the food. Now, if you're a macrobiotic vegetarian, you'd need to eat um, three or four kilograms more brown rice and stuff a day Mm -hmm. to get the extra bit of protein that your body's craving. And that's just physically not possible to do. So you'll remain lean because you're you're just simply unable to eat those calories. But if you you look at... um, the drivers of dilution of protein in, in the modern diet, uh, there, are, there are several, but economics is among them. We did an really? analysis. Yeah, if you, if you look at the price of protein relative to fat and carbohydrates, it's more expensive. What about tofu, soybeans? Right. Bring it on. High protein. They're, yep. they're, they're, they're good um, as protein sources. The, the problem comes if you make, if protein is more expensive and, and even tofu is more expensive than, than simple carbohydrate, for example. Yeah. So if you look at the ecology of nutrients, protein is the most expensive, fats the second most, and carbs the cheapest. And, and that puts economic drivers in several places. So you as a consumer are going to be prone to buy the cheaper stuff, mm-hmm. and the cheaper stuff will be lower in protein because that's the more expensive thing. You couple that with the processed food industry, which is also um, driven by its own economics to dilute protein in in snack foods, and you've got the perfect storm. So what you what you have, for example, in the extreme is what I call a protein decoy. 
which is a oh. savoury snack. Mm-hmm. You know, a potato chip or a, um, you know, a corn chip or what have you has all the sensory cues that we've evolved to associate with protein, umami flavours and salt. Mm-hmm. They're, the, they're protein cues. And our taste systems are designed for us to use those to detect high-protein foods. And when you're protein-hungry, you crave those flavours just like a locust. If you couple that with fat and carbohydrates, you've got a protein decoy. So, really? And we did this study here at the University of Sydney where we, we put people for a week at a time in the Glebe Point Sleep Centre of the Walcott mm, Sleep Centre. So that way you could control them 24 hours a day totally with they ate. control them. And we... we Covertly manipulated their diets, so we you cads, you're as bad as a psychologist. We were, we, we, and we took them out for a walk once a day, and they were they were on a string. It was a bit like taking primary school kids out because if you if you let people into the real world, they cheat and lie and mm-hmm. eat yeah. stuff, and they go to the pub, and it's all you know, not necessarily a a, a well controlled experiment. So, what we found was that in weeks where we had only ten percent protein in the diet. People ate 12% more calories than in weeks where they had 15% protein. And they did it by selecting snack foods that we provided that were savoury flavoured. You're kidding. Protein decoys. So, so that's why exactly. I love those really, those chips. I used to be a big fat bugger and I'd go and buy these huge packets of chips which tasted delicious and I'd eat them. At the end of eating them, I would have, number one, had half my daily amount of kilojoules. Mm, right. And number two... Had no protein. Oh, no protein. And number three, I was still hungry. It was a perfect <laughs> food. You, 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 you were still hungry, so you had to buy another one. Uh, that's and so exactly way, right. And it, the reason you're still hungry is because your body's still saying, eat more protein, eat more protein. Uh, the, thing, the thing that I find that, that, wow. with, with all the, those big ones, cardiovascular yeah. in particular, but um, obesity and diabetes, it, the thing that is, I don't know, frustrating is quite the word, remarkably complicated um, in intense conditions that are affecting billions of people around the right. world, but at the same time, not that difficult in theory to completely sort out. If everyone just went for it, the occasional jog and yeah. you, you, yeah. a little bit of an increase, we, like we yeah. know what people have to do yeah. to yeah. cure the vast bulk of cases of these morbidities, don't we? And so does that show the fact that the fact that fairly sim- it's, it's it's not like look, all these people have brain cancer. What can we possibly do? Right. All these people are overweight. What can we do? If they ate a bit cleaner and exercised a bit, right. we'd go a massive way to removing yep. a massive yep. percentage yep. of that. Does that show just how steep the natural obstacles are to over ah. overcoming it? Yes, and and you're absolutely right. Solution simple: eat less, move more. The reason we don't do it is because we're living in a world in which all of our basic biological control systems are subverted. So we're living in built-up environments where we're encouraged not to to move a lot. And like any animal, we're basically lazy. (laughs) We've evolved to be lazy. And and there's no point um, running around as a wild animal when you don't have to. Mm. So all animals are intrinsically lazy. It's an adaptive trait. It's something which has survival value. Um, we, we're also pre-designed through our ancestry to find certain things incredibly attractive. So if you go right back and estimate what Paleolithic people were eating, simple sugars were incredibly rare mm-hmm. and highly prized and so too was fat. Lean game animals had about 2% fat. Even 
the leanest of our own um, food animals today. Like Skippy? Like, like, well, Skippy's a wild animal. Oh, okay. It's about 2% fat too. But if you look at a lean breed of cow or sheep or what have you, they're about 15 to 20% ah. fat. So we're getting a lot more fat per mouthful than we ever were. But because these things were really rare and prized in our ancestral environment, we, we come pre-designed to find them mm. fantastically attractive, hedonically stimulating as the, the technical jargon goes. Mm. And you just have to look around the world at the extent to which people will put their lives at risk to get honey mm. to see the power of that, you know, <laughs> climbing massive trees and cliff faces. Mm. And so simple sugars and plus fat, they, they never in nature occur together. But if you put them together, you've got what's called in animal behaviour parlance, a supernormal stimulus. And that just interacts with our evolved biology to mean that you put such a creature into a world where simple fat and sugars are abundant, where the food industries are preparing foods that that are subverting our appetites Ooh. anyway, and where we're living in an urban environment and and added to that where our temperature control systems don't have to work hard to maintain our body temperature because we're always in centrally heated mm. or cooled cars or offices or homes. The net result of all of that is that even though it sounds simple, it's really difficult to solve. Yeah. We're talking with Professor Steve Simpson from the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney. He's the director of the centre. It's all about diabetes, cardiovascular health, obesity. Um, we're, we're running way over time with this Sleek Geeks podcast because it's very interesting. What we're going to do here, Carl, I'm going to ask one more question. You're going to ask one more question. Then I'm going to ask a hilarious question to finish the podcast. So I'm asking this question. You've got to think you've only got one more question here, Carl, so get ready, ready to go. You, you mentioned their paleo, Steve. Mm. Now, paleo is a very popular diet at the moment and you've got the 5 2 diet and you've right. got the Atkins diet and you've got the CSIRO yep. wellbeing diet and you've got... Right. In, in general, mm. do people need to be on a diet, whichever one it is, to eat to to, to keep their weight in check and to ha- follow a healthy lifestyle, or is it could could basic common sense, if followed properly, obviate the need for any fad diet or weight loss plan or regime? You know what I mean? I do hope so, because the fad diet industry and the zealotry that goes with it is madness. And any one of the so-called fad diets, are they're a problem. Now, the paleo diet, for example, is predicated on the most um, basic naivety, which is that we're the same organism as we were 40,000 years ago. And that certainly isn't true. We've evolved for the last 10,000 years on a very different diet. And you can see that manifested in our physiology today. So that's sort of naive. More than that, when you actually do a more sophisticated analysis of the effect of the balance of macronutrients on health, you see that a high-protein diet, which we've sort of been talking about, is good for weight loss and maintaining weight loss. But in the long run, if you chronically expose organisms, and we've done this, the the world's biggest study on mice in this instance, to parse the effects of protein, fat, and carbohydrate, they end up living less long. So you live longest, and this is true whether you're a fly or a mouse and perhaps to a human, on a low-protein, high-carbohydrate diet, Um, healthy carbohydrates, clearly. But the low-protein, high-carb diet prolongs life, but you don't do so well, for example, in reproductive output. Um, If you're an old-aged 
if you're in, in, in your later years, uh, the elderly do best on a higher-fat, higher-protein diet. So there's another aspect to it. Your life course will change your dietary requirements. Depending on what, if you want to lose weight and the costs of not doing so are greater than the long-term impact of being on a high-protein diet, then great, go on a high-protein diet, but be aware of the risks. Ah, now, in his book, uh, In Defense of Overeating, Kessler, who was the head of the FDA and a pediatric guy as well as a lawyer, he said or implied that perhaps the food companies were a little bit naughty in the way that they added foods together to give you something that was both unhealthy and uh, not leaving you full. You got any comments on that? Well, that's exactly what I was saying. So the um, the savoury flavoured snack is the protein decoy. And, and that is a subversion of our appetite control systems, which means that we eat more, sell more product, but at the cost of our health. So what we've got to do is align the commercial interests of the food sector with improved human health, not have it opposing improved human health. Ah, so the government should govern. I, I remember them explaining that when, when they were talking about the amount of salt that's in some breakfast cereals and people said, well, why don't you take the salt out? Oh, if we took the salt out, mate, there, there's, buy it. There's, there's so much sugar in it, you wouldn't be able to eat it. There's so much sugar. Well, why don't you take the sugar out? If we took the sugar out, that they'd be so salty. You just can't. Well, why don't you take both of them out? Well, then it's, oh. it's cardboard. Yeah. So final question for you. You, right. you're, you're the director of, and people would have seen your, your, your show on the ABC, which was called... What, Great Southern Land. Great Southern Land. Fantastic show. You're you know, you know, jumping out of planes and all sorts of stuff. You're a fairly fit, active guy. Mm. Do you have a sort of subconscious pressure on you now that you're the director of the centre that's checking out obesity and cardiovascular health and all that sort of stuff, and you're going to be very busy, very tempted, and, you know, just have little snacks here and there. Again. You've got to stay in good nick, don't you? You can't, you can't have the guys in charge of the Charles Perkins Centre getting a bit flabby. No, that's that's not a good look. But <laughs> I, I do not adopt a fad diet, and I'm not an exercise nut. Mm. So I, I, I remain moderately active. I, I love doing things outside. I love cooking. I love foraging. I'll catch fish. I'll um, collect mushrooms. I, I just, I enjoy food and I love the language of food. Oh, danger with mushrooms. I remember reading a paper about somebody who collected some mushrooms and they turned out to be hallucinogenic mushrooms. And the exact quote from the paper was, I felt as though I didn't have a care in the world, full stop. It was terrible. There you go. And that is another Sleek Geeks podcast altogether. If people want to check out the fantastic work that's being done at the Charles Perkins Centre, simply search for Charles Perkins Centre on any of your major web engines there at the University of Sydney. Thank you so much for your time, Professor Steve Simpson. It's a pleasure, Adam. Carl. Geeks.